Welcome to QAV, episode 17, QAV Club subscribers. This week we have a terrific interview with Matt Joss from, well, he's from himself right now, but if uh, you listen to other investing podcasts out there, you may know of Matt from the Three Wise Monkeys podcast. He used to be the portfolio manager with Motley Fool Pro in Australia, I think up until about six months ago. These days, as you'll see in the interview, he's basically a private investor. But uh, first of all, I want to thank Duncan Owen for recommending Matt to us as uh, a potential guest. And we wanted to get Matt on because he had really good performance with the portfolio while he was managing it. And we wanted to find out what he does, how he does it. And what's next for him? So let's jump to our chat with Matt Joss. Thank you, Matt Joss, for coming on the show. So tell us a little bit about what you do these days. I know from your website and the podcast uh, that you used to be the portfolio manager of Motley Fool Pro. What, what do you do with yourself today? Your website just says you're a private investor yeah, correct. So, um, yeah, so I've been and been with Motley Fool for a while. Ran a service for them called Pro that went pretty well, uh, investing in small, kind of fast-growing businesses. Uh, and I left there around six months ago. And um, yeah, at the moment, investing privately, but uh, looking at options for setting up something else um, fairly soon. So, so stay tuned. Could have some more stuff to announce in the next few months. But yeah, just enjoying investing privately at the moment. And of course, a lot of people will know you from the podcast, Three Wise Monkeys, currently on hiatus, maybe temporarily, depending. Yeah, I yeah. Think it's, we've, uh, I figure it's like, a, a break it's like when, when a band leaves the stage, you're waiting for the encore clapping to die down and you decide when you come back and do a do your, your big <laughs> yeah, hits. Hopefully. Hopefully there's an audience. We've had a few uh, encore requests. So yeah, yeah, we'll see. We've got everyone's, uh, everyone kind of came together, a few people with uh, different projects, Claude, Andrew, and myself. So, yeah, we're just, uh, just a busy time at the moment, but I'm sure that there'll be another episode again at some point in future. And, yeah, watch that space as well, I guess. So we know, again, from uh, what you've published on your website that the fund, the portfolio that you were running for Motley Fool Pro did very, very well over four and a bit years. And uh, I'm sure Tony's going to want to ask you a lot of questions about what you did that, uh, what you did that. What happened? How you did that, how you do it. Over to you, TK. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a very impressive result for the last four and a half years. I guess one of the questions I've got, the very first one is about that time period. Uh, It strikes me as being just one part of one cycle, uh, potentially. Have you invested outside of Motley Fuel Fool for a longer period of time, and do you have results for that? Um, yeah, so I started investing when I was eighteen. Um, uh, like a lot of people starting out, it was pretty pretty messy. It was just kind of thinking that investing was about finding a a hot idea and stuff like that. Um, it was in my mid twenties. I was living in or just just as I moved to Copenhagen. I joined a joined a shipping company grad program out of uni. That's when I discovered uh, Warren Buffett and and all of his his wisdom and kind of learned about value investing there. So that's when it kind of took over took over my life, you could say. Um, started an investment club there and yeah, every night and weekend was just about investing. Um, and then m- kind of started writing for the Motley Fool as a research analyst there and then moved down to Sydney um, after a couple of years there uh, in Copenhagen and, and started started here in Sydney where I still am today uh, as a research analyst for the first um, two years of 
two and a bit years of, of prose life and then took over as a portfolio manager there. Um, yeah, so it is, uh, I guess, that that period um, has been a good time for the strategy. But um, yeah, had a, had, a, had a good run as well. And I think the key thing is it's not... Um, it's not a growth strategy. It's a it's a value driven strategy. But investing in companies that are growing rather than companies that are static or declining, which is kind of what a lot of classic value investing has become, is um, kind of backwards looking. And I guess it's kind of applying that lens, which is the reason I was excited to join the Motley Fool. Is one of the founders there, David Gardner, has a very um, very impressive long term track record uh, investing in growing businesses. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just a different strategy and it's how you can kind of marry that to thinking about the future but still paying a reasonable price for it or hopefully a very unreasonably low price. So uh, I can't help being reminded by the, I think it was the Peter Lynch uh, book that talked about the PEG ratio, so, so taking growth into account when looking at the current PE. Is that part of your thinking? Not really. It's kind of rubbish, to be honest. Like It's a good rule of thumb, but it doesn't really work very well um, so I, I guess to, to step back, I think, I, you know, coming from a very classic um, kind of Benjamin, Benjamin Graham kind of valuation school um, kind of drew me in because I'm quite that kind of analytical um, scientific kind of guy, I think. Uh, so coming from that view, but then then kind of applying it to growth. So the, the way I think about it is kind of like uh, if you're trying to figure out what a tree was worth and say that you've got a, a tree that's like two meters high. Um, and you're going to try and put a value on it, the kind of classic approach to that would say, well, it's not very big. You know, what could you make out of that tree? Maybe a baseball bat or something like that. It's not worth too much, but it's worth something. You could cut it down and you, maybe it's worth like $40. Uh, but the other approach is to think, well, actually that tree um, is a redwood tree. It's going to grow to be extremely large in future. Um, how big is that going to be? What's it going to be worth then? And then trying to discount it back to the present. So that's very much the kind of school of thought um, or the strategy that I uh, adopt. And there's, neither is right or wrong. Like both can still make money. Um, but I guess the classic Graham method is a bit harder to adopt uh, these days because it's become a bit more widely known and it's a bit easier to measure. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's part of, what's, part of what's driven some of the difference between value and what you might call growth over the last five, ten years. Yeah, so I, I um, like the idea of it being forward-looking rather than rear rearward looking do you factor in somehow the the risk of you know what you think might be the potential not coming off in your calculations yeah 100 percent um so i kind of think of it like you're talking about a, a tree i think it's you need to think of the business environment as you know a, an adaptive system so it's a it's it's a, it's a living organism i guess so you need to think about um its position uh, in the industry, what's the chance that it's going to be um, impacted by other companies? How dominant is its competitive position? And all of that, you can kind of like the crude way to bake it in is with that discount rate. It's kind of like a hurdle rate um, that you'd apply to that company. And so some riskier companies would have a higher discount rate than others. But any, the challenge with valuing growing businesses is the future is very uh, difficult to forecast. And so, and it's not not just difficult, but impossible, um, because it's it's unknown. It's not uh, it's not a deterministic calculation, you could say. So, I think when you're trying to put a value on a company, you need to remember that it's just one kind of point in a in a cloud of different possible futures that you're trying to value. And so, then uh, you need to think about kind of the range of possible outcomes. And ideally, if you're buying um, at a at a you know very good price, and you're buying businesses which themselves are inherently very um, stable, defensive growth businesses, then those um, have a 
what you'd want to look for is companies which have limited downside, but potentially uh, many multiples upside if they're successful. So that's kind of the unique combination. And you have to be very, very picky to find that. But that's, um, I guess that's the the golden thing that you're trying to look for. So take me through an example. I I noticed that you recently on your website uh, spoke about push pay and push pay was reaching an inflection point, which I like as a a concept. Maybe you could explain that to us. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, push pay first purchased uh, back in, I think it was 2016, maybe 2017. Um, And so the business uh, provides donation management software for churches, particularly in the U.S., uh, which is something that isn't as big a part of the culture here, but is huge in the U.S. And kind of, I guess you'd say, providing a software solution for the collection plate could be one simple way to think about it, but it's a lot bigger than that. Uh, about $120 billion is donated to churches in the U.S. every year. And Pushpay provides uh, an app that the churches use to kind of engage with everyone who's attending the church and then have a, a button there to, to give uh, through that church. So it's a very interesting model. They can charge software fees for providing that um, engagement and giving software, but they also can charge a processing fee just like any other credit card company like Stripe or Visa or et cetera. So it's, it's quite an attractive model because enterprise software itself is an uh, incredibly attractive business model. Um, you have, which we can go into later if we want to get into it, but um, so it's an incredibly attractive model. And then they kind of capture, they're aligned very deeply with the customers. They can capture a lot of the, growth um, of the customers themselves. And the more that they help their clients, the more that they benefit as well. So yeah, getting back to your point of um, the inflection point, I guess when we first purchased, it was more of a screaming bargain. In, in my view, it was trading on a few times sales, which is uh, which is interesting, right? It's a different view from a screaming bargain compared to Benjamin Graham's view of buying an asset for you know 50 cents when you can liquidate it and sell it for a dollar. But to me, that was extremely cheap at around I think the share price is around $1.50. And the reason was because that growth was extremely transparent. You could see they were growing several hundred percent per year. And the quality of the revenue that they were generating was extremely high. So customer retention rates were very, very high, like on a customer level, around 95%. That was actually higher on a revenue level because customers tended to spend more each year as they stuck around. So it's over 100% revenue retention rate. Um, and very, but you could see that it was going to be um, very high margin at that stage. They're burning cash, so I think that that um, to get to inflection points is uh, different points in a company's life where the future uh, fundamentals of the business are going to be very different from its recent past. And there's no um, inherent reason there has to be a good time to buy because valuation always matters. But it is often the case that the market um, doesn't fully appreciate those moments. And uh, it can be a good opportunity where a lot of the risk has been taken out um, and you're still capturing a lot of the upside once you kind of see evidence that a, a company is tipping past those fundamental inflection points, as, as I call them. So in this kind of methodology you're using, do you have a checklist of inflection points or a checklist of valuations or a checklist of quality that you look for when deciding to buy a company? Yeah, I'd say that that's um, – so the, step, the stepping through my process is um, – trying to be extremely broad and covering my universe and then digging extremely deep into a few companies. So I literally go through like every company on the stock market, A to Z, um, which is about 2,200 companies, um, just manually checking them for types of traits that I like to look for. Um, And then from those drawing down to a very small watch list of say 40 to 50 companies and then digging more into those, um, trying to understand a whole lot of other things with with the kind of 
competitive landscape of the business, uh, if it's a dominant company with a, a wide and growing moat, if it's um, able to reinvest at high rates of return. And then for and then the kind of last step is uh, valuation. So is this um, an attractive uh, price that I'm paying given everything I understand about the company? Uh, and I try to do that last because I want to um, understand the company very well um, and then kind of leave that as the deciding point whether it's time to purchase a company. So yeah, there's a, there'd be a lot in a checklist. It's not, it's not I don't use a, a point scoring system. It's more just trying to narrow down to very high quality um, opportunities. Uh, so yeah, all those all those things I've mentioned. We're looking for high returns on incremental invested capital, um, high and growing gross margins. Uh, yeah, a dominant competitive position. Um, ideally, the employees like them. Um, high retention rates, so customers like them. Uh, there's a whole lot of whole lot of different things, and it's very hard to find a company that ticks every box. But um, if you can get pretty close to that, I think you're in a good position. And then again, valuation is the last measure. So on valuation, even though it's the last measure. You talked before about having a ratio of price to sales and also doing a discounted cash flow for where you think it might be in the future. Would you buy something that wasn't making a profit and didn't look like it would make a profit into the future? I guess it depends what we mean by future for didn't look like it was going to make a profit. So first, I don't use price to sales at all for deciding whether to buy companies. It's just a handy shorthand for talking about them um, and, and kind of where they're at. So all of my decision is around uh, discounted cash flow, forecasting typically out 10 years, could be longer, depending on how long the high growth period is. Um, but yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get a handle where I think the company is going to be in future. And so that discounted cash flow would be the, the method I'd use. And just to step into why, I guess, as I mentioned, the growing trees, I guess there's, there's kind of like three ways to think about a, a company. There's that, that assets way, which is, you know, everything that's done in the, like if you sell off all the, um, the buildings and the, the desks and everything else, what could you get? Then there's uh, what they call earnings power. So if you just take its current profits and assume those continue um, kind of indefinitely into the future, what's that worth? And then the last is a value, putting a value on the growth. Uh, so the type of businesses I like to look at are typically growing businesses, which means I need to have a good handle on what that growth is going to be worth today. So, yeah, it's it's um, simple but not easy. It's it's trying to figure out what I think is going to happen in the future and then discounting that back to today. Yeah, so I guess I guess that's where I'm I'm struggling the most to understand what you're doing. I would find it very hard to know what a company's going to look like in ten years' time, and then put that into a spreadsheet and discount it back to today's dollars and work out evaluation. I could see it being easier to do it in a year's time when perhaps you've got management guidance and you can't see any sort of storms on the horizon coming through. But how do you how do you project out ten years in advance? Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, if it was, that's kind of the advantage of it, I guess. It's very, it's difficult to do. And that's why there's often mispricings, because if it was quite easy, um, everyone could see what it was going to do in, in five or 10 years. Um, and so they would all be priced in. And I think a lot of these companies, it just hasn't been accurately priced in. And it can go both ways. When, when things are inefficient, people can get overhyped as well, which you can come to later. But um, the, yeah, it's really about thinking um, I guess what there's a, a few different ways you can build up to it. It's thinking about what kind of growth rate it's been able to achieve. What do you think, um, given its sales and distribution model, it can achieve in the future, given the size of the market, given its competitive position in the market? Um, what are growth rates of competitors? What's kind of the base rate for other companies at this size in this uh, market? What, what have they tended to continue to grow at if they've been growing at this rate? Um, so it's forecasting that out. I normally start... 
um, forecasting out at a revenue line and then work my way through um, effectively an income statement forecasting that out. So that gives you some business. These businesses typically have quite a bit of operating leverage, which means their profits go a lot faster than their, their revenue because they have a fairly fixed cost base and then their revenue can grow for quite a long time. Um, but there isn't really a like a one-size-fits-all solution. It's really thinking about the business. Um, I guess one other thing is I think through the adoption curve for a new product. So typically there's a... Um, the kind of the S-curve of growth uh, is how you think about the adoption of a new product or a new industry. Uh, and that can often apply to these these types of businesses. So they go through a stage where growth is high in relative terms, but not very noticeable for a long time. And then there's this big uh, ramp up at the kind of the middle part of the S, you could say. Um, and then it slows down after that over time. So that's that's really what I'm trying to model out and kind of think through. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not it's not an easy thing to do by any means, and you'll ne- I don't think you'd ever be a hundred percent right. But it's just about, about being more kind of directionally accurate than the rest of the market. I think you've probably got a pretty good shot of having a, an outsized return then. So take, let's get back to the push pay example then. So what's push pay trading at now? Around three dollars, something like that. Uh, about three seventy, I think it was three dollars, four dollars New Zealand, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, three eighty. I just looked it up. Um, so they've come out and they've said that they're going to grow annual operating revenue guidance of between 122.5 US million and 125.5 US million. Margin guidance of 63%. And then something called EBITDAF, I'm not sure what that is, maybe you could tell me. And that's 17.5 to 19.5 million. So if you plug those kinds of numbers in, first of all, would you plug those numbers into your model or would you do your own analysis? And secondly, uh, and secondly, then, uh, if you plug those numbers in, how do you extrapolate them? And what kind of valuation do you come up for push pay and over what time period? Yeah, so um, I don't just plug in management numbers because I guess then um, there's not much point. You can just kind of take whatever they say um, and be done. They wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd be very unlikely to um, have a different opinion from the market, I guess, than that. And also you'd be biased a lot by management. So it's not something that I'd, I do for the type of investing I'm doing. Um, it'd be I'd forecast out the cash flows myself. I'd, I'd check with what management are forecasting as like a sanity check or as a basis then to decide if I'm above or below what the current price is um, or what the kind of expectations are. But it wouldn't be kind of the core part of their guidance. There'd be other things that I'd be more interested in understanding um, around the business and like where they, how much hiring they expect to be doing, what they're seeing in, in different aspects. But um, yeah, so I'd be, I'd be forecasting. I'd probably I have already a forecast of the future um, and uh, the next year probably wouldn't be the biggest driver of the difference in um, my valuation versus the market because it's more about how the high growth um, phase can be um extended for a longer period of time and what that means to the fundamentals of the business. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, wouldn't be using an EBITDAF number. I don't really think in EBITDA terms either. I think in free cash flow terms. Um, and it's just about thinking through, like, everything I understand about the industry, how fast competitors are growing, how much opportunity there is to keep to keep growing, what kind of likely at maturity um, penetration of the market will that business have. 
Um, and so, yeah, landing on Pushpay, today's price, I don't think it's um, extremely undervalued at, if you bake in kind of its current run rate of what it's doing. I think it's probably around fair value at a bit over $4. Um, as I said, when I was first buying the shares, are much more attractive um, relative to my estimate of intrinsic value. But the business has, the growth has slowed a bit. So they grew 40% um, last year. They're forecasting uh, a somewhat lower number. Um, but yeah, just to dig into Pushpay as a unique example, the growth the forecast is they've effectively almost already won all of that business and it's all recurring mm-hmm. revenue. So mm-hmm. it's extremely um, reliable that they will deliver something very close to that, if not um, upgrade it. And the kind of opportunity on top is uh, if they can then go and acquire another business that adds a lot of very high margin revenue, uh, which is a strategy that they're looking to pursue, or if they can launch another product line. So, yeah, at today's prices, I don't think it's the bargain that it was um, a few years ago. But I think that that's how if you don't do that, you don't really have any way to, to know that. So I think a lot of people now have learned some bad lessons from uh, a raging bull market where they think mm-hmm. the only, only lesson you learn is that you should have bought everything and you should never have sold anything almost. Um, and so people have kind of I've talked to a lot of people who are otherwise – quite sensible who would say things like I don't I've learned to ignore valuation and to me that's probably the biggest mistake you can make um, because mm. it will lead you into overpaying um, at the top of any cycle that happens. Yeah I've heard that as well people are saying that quality should be the only metric at the moment you should buy quality and, and at whatever price it's offered to you which to me just sounds insane. Yeah it's it's um, and wrong in any in any measure, if you look at history or just first principles. Um, and I get why. It's because we've been going through the biggest rate cut um, cycle in, in history. And we're at the mm. end of the longest, at least if you look at the US bull market in history. In Australia, there hasn't been a recession for 30 years. So there's all sorts of funny um, thinking. But, um, you know, the old Warren Buffett saying it's only when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, see what so- happens. I mean, what you just said then feeds into my thesis about where we are in the market. I don't necessarily know that we're at the top because interest rates are so low. So I think what's happened in this market is that, you know, maybe five, maybe a little bit longer years ago, interest rates came down. A lot of money started flowing into private equity companies and VC funds because it was so cheap for them to go out and raise money, either as debt or equity. Uh, and then they had to deploy it, and they got into this game of here's a here's a growing company and it's got quality management. I don't care what price it is, I'm getting an early and buying it. Uh, sometimes they flip it over in, into the general public who continue that kind of mantra. But but it does seem to me to be a function of this low interest rate environment. So one, it scares me that that's been going on for a market cycle now. We have to be getting to a point where it's going to uh, top out and, and crash. Uh, but but secondly, what worries me even more is I don't see interest rates rising, so I don't see the sort of wall of money coming at these companies, the VC funds and PE companies sort of slowing down. So I'm um, kind of a bit betwixt and between as to where we are. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting one, right? Because if you actually adjust and assume that these interest rates are here to stay, then uh, the share market's like super cheap. And that's kind of what we've seen the last few weeks is Australia, if you look at the 10-year bond rate for Australia, it's plummeted, right? It's, it's insane. If you look at that chart, it's just fallen off a cliff. And the, the instant reaction for that is then everything should be worth more if that's if that's what's going to happen in future because just like that discount rate, it's like a, like the, the fulcrum of a lever, right? If you, mm. if you change that in, then it, it makes everything else 
much much more valuable it's like uh, you know a fall from two percent to one percent almost kind of doubles the valuation of everything people don't really appreciate that um non-linear thinking there but that's that's what happens and that's what the markets are i think they've started pricing it in much more quickly now the first time when we had qe in the u.s everyone's like it's so weird and bizarre that no one prices it in and now um the markets are going well you know last time we saw asset prices soar when this happened so that they're kind of doing it more quickly. Well, it's even worse than that. The market's starting to now try and second guess rounds of QE and, and get set or get out before they happen. Yeah, which is a perverse world, right? Because the economy mm. performs poorly and so then people um, start investing because they think there's going to be a lot of QE. <laughs> um, yeah, so it is, it is hard. I don't, um, I don't really try and t- like time cycles or that type of thing. I try to just let it be driven by valuation so that at certain points it'd be um, more likely to be trying to buy everything I can and other points um, not not seeing as many attractive um, opportunities and maybe holding more cash. But um, but yeah, it is it is definitely an uncharted territory. I think particularly in Australia where we've got some really quite weak um, fundamental economic data and at the end of a very, very long cycle and just not that not that clear where um, where the growth is going to come from unless they can really reinflate housing. But yeah, maybe that's a topic for another time. Given all that, are you still investing as much as you were or are you putting more on the sidelines now because you can't find those kind of deep value, albeit based on growth type stocks to invest in? Yeah, I guess deep growth is how I think about it. But um, yeah, it's uh, I, I still am, but it's um, some are coming towards being trimmed back a bit more. So I guess I, I do have a bit more cash than I would have had, um, say, two years ago when I was still um, things were looking more attractive. But it's just at the moment, I've still been able to find um, opportunities, particularly moving to being a, a private investor the last six months. It means that I can invest in a lot smaller or more liquid companies without um, so much concern of moving the share price. So that's been good. But it is definitely something on my mind is thinking about um, finding, yeah, keeping your head about you. I, my, my kind of view is it's very hard to try and time the market. And as long as I'm still seeing good opportunities and I still am seeing or have been seeing um, some very good opportunities, that's kind of what I let drive me. But um, yeah, hopefully if, that, if you stick with that, then you should end up having a bit more cash um, during times when things are frothy and kind of go all in um, at times where there's more attractive opportunities. Yeah, I agree with you there. You're better off using valuation rather than trying to time the market, which leads me to the question of how do you get out? So if push pay went to $5, for example, would you be trimming it or selling it? What What, what is your exit strategy? Yeah, I would. Yeah. So um, at, assuming that it all depends on where, where, where I think the valuation is at that point. So um, I am willing to hold uh, companies that have run a little above my intrinsic value if I think there's um, market um, kind of important opportunities what's the best way to describe it, significant opportunities uh, for them to have a different uh, way to outperform that I haven't baked in. So I don't like valuations actually, um, I think are quite conservative in the sense that I'm only baking in what I can reasonably forecast. But there can be times, Ultium is probably a good example. A few years back, I've held that from around $2.70 or something. It ran up to around $10 and at one point quite quickly. Um, And I was it was right around my intrinsic value estimate at that point. Um, I think it was around $9.50 from memory, roughly my intrinsic value estimate was. It got up a bit above that. And I decided to hold on there because I could see that um, they were just starting to gain traction in selling to China. And that was quite a unique case because in China, the problem was no one was paying for their software. Everyone was using it. No one was paying for it. So it was really more debt collection than um, selling. 
And if they could um, make any progress on that, then the valuation would significantly increase. And so that was kind of like just at the edge where I was you know, thinking maybe trimming back the position somewhat um, and kind of just on the edge of my valuation. And as it turned out in the next results, they reported extremely strong 30% growth in China and kind of a very long runway for continuing that growth. So in that case, it happened to work out. Sometimes it won't. Um, but yeah, that's generally just generally where I'm thinking about. And then the flip side is most of my selling would be more driven by um, the thesis breaking, in my view. So I have a very clear idea when I get into a stock, I write it down. Uh, what would cause me to, what am I evaluating the company on? A, so what are the metrics that I'll be looking at? And then B, what is the, does it, what would invalidate my thesis for the future? What is going to be different to what I've forecast? And if any of that happens, I like to um, try and pride myself on selling quite quickly um, to kind of recognize I've got something wrong. Uh, in saying that, I tend to tend to be holding for a long time. So it's not like I'm a trader or something like that. And my idea is to hold throughout periods of just share market volatility. But if I think I've got something wrong, um, I want to be kind of willing to admit that I was wrong relatively quickly. I think that's one of the biases a lot of portfolio managers have is they don't tend to make very good sell decisions. They think a lot about buying but not selling. So, yeah, so those are my two. Obviously, anything valuation always matters. I guess I'm willing to give some opportunity for other upside and then thinking through, is the thesis broken or is there anything that kind of invalidates my thinking? Can you tell us about something that may have gone wrong for you? I mean, I'm, I'm still a little bit struggling to get my head around how you project out to the future with any degree of certainty. So obviously, there's got to be times when that projection hasn't worked. Yeah. So um, Pushpay is actually an example. I thought Pushpay was going to grow um, even faster than it did. Um, so that's one. But obviously, it's not a very good example for you because it still, still did pretty well. Um, so what would be some others? I think um, I wrote I, I wrote on the um, – well, another one I've written about is Class Software. So that um, provides – uh, software for managing self-managed super fund administration. So quite a big growing industry. Um, it had forecast, or it was the market leader as everyone switched to cloud. Um, it was growing extre- extremely fast. And my thesis was that it would be able to dominate the space. It was getting around 60% share of new um, people moving to the cloud. Uh, and um, I kind of saw an opportunity, or we saw an opportunity for it to kind of run the table and continue doing that. And what happened, I continuously always monitoring the company and its competitors. Uh, One big competitor, there was an incumbent in the space, BGL. I was monitoring that very closely. And they were continuously coming out with these kind of updates that were very positive, but really had no substance. So they'd say, you know, we've released this great new product. It's going to be the amazing thing we're going to do. Everything will be great. And and for a long time, that was all it was. Um, And I'd kind of reply to the CEO as putting them out and ask for some numbers and that he'd be quite kind of... (laughs) overconfident, I'd say, and 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 right back and um, not much happened there. But then at one point, um, kind of around this very similar time, quite a short period, class released some results that showed that their growth had slowed dramatically in the latest quarter. At the same time, uh, reading um, BGL's updates that onboarded, I think it was around 100,000, well, they'd reached 100,000 customers and I want to say onboarded 20,000 in the last quarter. So very, very high rate of growth. And it just invalidated the thesis that we had um, at that point, so decided to sell. Um, yeah, so that's, like, I guess, where it can go wrong. It depends how early in the journey um, you are when you first find the um, investment, how, how well it, how long it works in your favor. But being willing to 
being willing to sell quickly when a, when the thesis is broken is, is super important because the shares, I don't know, today they're probably 40% below where they were then. Um, yeah, so I think that that can be like, that's probably one of the good examples of, of thinking it through. Another, um, so we still made money on class. Another where we might have lost a little was Sky Network Television, thought that that was going to be able to keep up against um, Netflix. And when Netflix launched, we saw some early data that um, its share of the internet use in New Zealand was extremely high in a very short period of time. So uh, able to sell, I think we might have might have been a small loss on that. Um, but that's that's the ideal. You're monitoring things other than just the public financials so that you can get a read on how the business is performing and sell before um, the, the market appreciates or is fully baked in what you can appreciate from having studied the business. So what kind of things would you look for uh, if you're looking to research a market outside of what's available to the public? I know you spoke about uh, staff, staff uh, scores before. Did you, is there a particular website or particular service you use to gain those? Yeah, Glassdoor is quite popular. Um, it depends on the business, but that's that's quite a good one. So you can get read reviews of all the staff, well, anyone who chooses to push a review. So they probably have a bias towards being negative, but it's quite. some of them can be quite detailed. That's I'd check that for every company if they have um, if they have an account there, and a lot of them do. Um, it's all public, so I don't want to don't want to seem like it's not. It's just public, but not deemed. It's not like released by the company in a financial statement. So it's really drawing public information and, and inferences from it, and it's really specific to each company. Normally, um, I think you can read you know forums and all that, and there might be like one percent signal to ninety nine percent noise in most stock market forums, but there might be a few comments out there that are interesting. Um, but really, it's quite specific to the company. So like when we were first investing in Bellamy's, um, you could go to Bellamy's website and check um, your postcode and see if there was um, if they had distribution and or you could see which chemists they were in. And so I went there and checked, you know, hundreds of postcodes and determined how many chemists they were in. And you could do that um, kind of at scale and try and figure out how many chemists they're in. And that's all public information. It's just being willing to go and do the shoe leather research and trying to figure it out. Um, yeah, so that's that's all the stuff that I'm trying to do. Trying to think of some different way um, of gathering public info and trying to um, do some different analysis on it can be one way to get an edge. So, well, Bellamy's is a good example. It sounds like you're an investor in them. Did, are you still an investor in them or did you get out uh, in the last 12 months? Yeah, so we um, bought, we first recommended that around $2.70, I want to say. Um, we held that, held some at $12.00 got up to like 16 at one point. Um, and unfortunately, we got caught in that as well. So I think we ended up selling out the remainder at around $4, I want to say. Um, yeah, so it was still overall, you know, again, a, another example, probably up, um, I don't know, 50, 60% overall on the position, but could have done better if we'd been um, been able to identify, this was two years ago when it crashed, um, crash the oh, first sorry. time you could say, um, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a good example. If you can do that research to figure out the market was actually a bit wrong, um, and in that case, you know, it's never you're you're forecasting the future, so it's very probabilistic. Mm. Um, a really good book I'd recommend on it for anyone interested is Super Forecasting, um, the Art and Science Ooh. of Prediction. So um, that is by Philip Tetlock, the same guy who did the research in the early 90s, Expert Political Judgment, which came up with this, well, was quoted widely as um, most experts are about as useful as, um, you know, a chimp throwing darts at a dartboard. Mm -hmm. So the average expert isn't very good at forecasting the future. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so this inter- this follow-up book is super interesting because it's from that same guy. And he did this very big study um, with CIA analysts. And he was able to identify that that is true, that most the average um, expert or average professional forecaster is not very good. But there is like a very top tier 2% of um, analysts that are better than any other model that they had at forecasting. And then he runs through in the book like what the traits of those people are and what the more importantly what the traits of their processes um mm. so i think that has probably been that's sort of like a core part of how i think about trying to forecast these things is um you know taking an inside and outside view thinking through the base rates historically um yeah all the all the things that talks about in there that's like a good a good primer of, of how to think about forecasting in a difficult domain it is a good book isn't it i think that's the one that talks about running a running a prize uh someone will nominate uh, something wacky to forecast and then check it in 12 months' time and let people log on and give their best estimates. Yeah, so he yeah. Run, he ran that exactly and he found like a very um, efficient way to measure it. And there's so much interesting thing. Like the forecasters aren't really right just at one point. They're just continuously updating their forecast mm. based on new information. And it's just, yeah, everything I'd, I'd recommend that book very highly. I think that if you're thinking about um, investing particularly around growth and growth companies that's probably the greatest source to to think about well i was going to ask you what books you uh, would recommend so that's one of them do you have do you have other ones yeah there's a there's another old one um called 100 to 1 in the stock market which is written in like the 1970s i think um which i quite like as well it's about um any company or a collection of companies that had more than a hundred fold returns in the stock market and trying to trying to find a few um, examples from there um, and then there's a more recent version, 100 Baggers, which is basically a more modern version of the same type of book. Um, and it's really, it's really interesting because there's some companies, right? So Apple, I think, was in – no, Apple was about an 800 bagger, something like that. At the time it was written, I think um, Berkshire Hathaway was an 18,000 bagger. So for every dollar you invested, you get $18,000 back. Um, you know, Amazon's whatever it is, 3,000 bagger now. So some of them, um, I think it, it kind of shows how hard or impossible it would have been to predict. Mm. But there's some examples where they're actually trading at reasonable valuations. So Monster Beverage in, in that book, 100 Baggers, um, you know, the Monster Energy Drink um, mm-hmm. that you've probably seen everywhere. Uh, there's, it kind of charts a journey and there's many times along that, along that ride where it is actually trading in a very like reasonable, obviously it's still a, a high multiple, but a high multiple recognizing its growth. And um, yeah, it's just an interesting thought trying to think through what are some of the traits that kind of uh, those companies have. Um, and I it influenced my investing a lot because I think it represents uh, the distribution of the share market's returns. If you look at any study of um, the share market, most most companies actually perform really badly. Like, I mean, we talk about two two and two thousand two hundred companies. I've been going through that again recently. Most of them are just trash. Um, and so the average return, if you bought an average company, would be negative. It wouldn't be 10% a year or whatever the market does. The average would actually be you know, just around zero or negative. And then there's this very small um, number of companies that generate the vast majority, if not all, of the profits of the share market. Um, and so there's a few different ways you could um, you know, deal with that realization. You could buy just the very largest companies that towards the tail end of their growth, and you're probably going to be more exposed to those than they're not, but um, they tend to be the, at the more mature end and they've already done the growing. And so my approach is just trying to find as many common traits that they have and trying to um, kind of position the portfolio to be into those companies that have the potential at least to be um, high growth, long-term success stories. Uh, yeah. 
That's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, the, the share market has delivered 10% a year over the last 100 years. But uh, given that there are these outliers who are you know, going up at 50, 60, 100% a year, that means there's got to be a lot balancing it out at the other end of the bell curve going backwards as well. So it really is about, it really is about finding the, the good apples in the barrel and ditching the bad ones, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's not easy. So I think that, that um, ditching the bad ones is most of what my process is. It sounds like um, if you look at the type of companies I like to buy, they are companies that are growing um, fast. But my approach isn't to just go and buy that basket because I think the kind of reversion of the mean and everything else that can happen, there's a lot of bad apples in there as well. Most of my mm-hmm. process is knowing what not to choose and avoiding the ones. or And that's why I try and focus on selling quickly is realizing actually this isn't a company that's going to go on to be in that top 2% of the share market. It's um, you know it's a, it's an also ran uh, in trying to get out and, and reposition into something else that I think has that potential. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you know different, different strokes for different folks. You could have a quantitative approach that um, can hold a lot of you know very cheap companies. You have another approach in the middle. So there's a there's a lot of ways to make money in the stock market as long as I think you're logically consistent internally and you know can find some sources of edge, whether it's behavioral or analytical or informational. Yeah, look, I agree. I think that's um, I think one of the one of the issues I've got with with uh, trying to buy growth stocks and I, I must admit I you know haven't spent a lot of time looking at them because I just struggle to to get the valuations right going out into the future. But it's how do I separate the Bellamy's and the gift, the get swifts from the push pays and the after pays? It's uh, it, you know I, I find it very difficult to pick to pick one growth stock which is investable versus another one. To me they're all they're all pretty much stories. Um, are you playing a probabilistic game or are you? You, do you find there's a checklist you can use to separate the wheat from the chaff when they're still young? Yeah, it is. It is essentially a checklist. It's just trying to understand the business really well. And I kind of think about it when I'm when I'm reviewing a company. It's kind of like I'm like coming up with bare thesis why I shouldn't buy the company, and then um, discrediting them if I am ending up buying it. So it's like any company that I own, I've normally gone through like 30 reasons why I shouldn't own it, <laughs> if that makes sense. And then actually that doesn't fit, you know, and that doesn't make and then oh, actually it kind of and then it kind of makes it through where you're like, oh, I guess I'm, you know, I guess I'm buying this thing. Um and so it's yeah, it's kind of driven that way. It's not, it's not, it's not going to be perfect. You know, there's um there's always some company that you just get wrong and hopefully the um the more you can buy at a great price originally the less kind of damage you suffer from it and the more quickly you can realize you made a mistake but i do i am um, fairly concentrated so 15 to 20 companies not just buying a whole basket and yeah for me it's really thinking through the business itself so i try and stop not think about the share price um at all until i really understand the business and what's what's going to stop this company growing and earning um being able to generate large cash flows and high margins you know, five, 10 years from now. Um, so there's some businesses that are more likely to be able to do that than others. So I touched on before software and there's a, the reason I like it so much is it's kind of like if you imagine the perfect business you wanted to create, the perfect business model, you know, it'd require very little capital. So to have high returns on invested capital, you wouldn't have to put much more mid- money into the business to grow it. It would be infinitely repu- reproducible with zero marginal cost, um, very sticky uh, kind of customers that don't leave very easily because it's high switching costs and it would have you know revenue that recurs without you having to go out and make a big capital sale and all of those things describe enterprise software pretty well 
Um, I think it's part of the reason that that sector has performed well. Um, and then you've got other things, obviously, you mentioned before, there's a lot of hype now that people have realized it's swelled and you have to try and figure out, find in that, within that sector, are there still good bargains, which I still think there are. But um, yeah, there's a few reasons. So I'd say that um, it's thinking through the business itself, um, getting a really good understanding of it and hopefully understanding it better than anyone else that's investing in it or at least most of the market. And if you can do that, if you do all of that work, then you should have kind of a list of companies that you understand really well and think are really high quality. And then it's just a matter of waiting or, um, well, waiting until the market gives you an opportunity if you have to wait and having an idea of what you think all those cash flows are worth. And then if you can buy them, just like any other value investing, if you can buy it at a discount to that, um, you're probably going to do pretty well. How do you um, how do you deal with a lot of these companies are starting out? So how do you deal with small companies and the liquid companies? In terms of, do you put a screen on things and say, "I just can't buy enough stock," or "I, I don't want to fall into what uh, can be called the lobster trap, so I can get in but I can't get out"? <laughs> it's a dangerous trap. It's, I like that. I hadn't heard that one before. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely something I thought about a lot when I was managing um, the prior services, running other people's money, because we had around $200 million following that advice. So I was very, I was very conscious of entry and exit. And probably, um, I think in hindsight, it was like a good thing because it forced me to be even more picky around what companies I selected. Um, but yeah, so it's something I think about. But I do, on the flip side, it's kind of like the smaller and more illiquid that you can um, invest in, I think, at least for the strategy I'm deploying, you should. So basically, the more small and illiquid um, that you can go down to means that there's other people who can't. So, you know, people who are running a billion dollars can't even think about investing in a company that's, you know, less than 100 million or 200 million market cap, um, whereas people who are running less money can quite easily. So it just kind of limits the competition that you have. Um, and the, comp- the less competition you have, the better. doesn't mean you're going to get a good price because it can still be just like all of the mining explorers on the ASX that can be extremely overvalued, but there's more opportunity for mispricing. So, yeah, I think about it um, a lot, but I, I guess you, have to, you just have to weigh it up. It's like a, it's like a trade-off, you know. If a company is more illiquid, um, then I'd be less, you know, less likely to buy it for the same valuation. But if it's, I think it's much uh, at a much available to much bigger discount, I'd be more keen. Um, on the flip side, though, another reason small is good is just because I'm really looking for that long runway of fundamental growth. And so, if a company is still small, it normally has a better opportunity to grow for a much longer time. So, um, A2 Milk's another one I've owned um, for five, six years, and that um, company was. Um, relatively modest, um, a few hundred million market cap um, when I when I was buying shares, and today, you know, do four or five hundred million dollars of EBITDA a year. So it's like the, the market opportunity relative to the size is important if that's the if the strategy you're deploying is trying to identify very big winners. Because one of the common traits that you'd see in both of those books I mentioned is they tend to start out small, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, on the topic they tend to have like good. Um, research-oriented management teams and tend to have um, some unique asset of whether it's um, IP or something else that allows them to reinvest at high rates for a long time. Hmm. I guess um, we've been talking for a while. Just one last question. Did, I, I was around when the dot-com boom happened and I think the NASDAQ dropped from like 5,000 to 1,000 in a very short time period. It, and it happens with the flip of a switch almost. Do you, do you ever worry about that kind of uh, catastrophic event happening with these kinds of stocks because it seems to me when the music stops and you and you 
you can't project uh, exponential growth out there for whatever reason that the, the floor just falls out of these companies. Yeah, so there's a few things to think about there. I definitely think about it a fair bit, particularly with where we're at um, at the moment. But um, so there's a few things. First is the worst, the re- part of the reason that the drop was so severe or why so many um, companies suffered so badly was because they're quite dependent on external capital. So it was kind of this um, self-reinforcing loop where companies would raise a lot of money and then they'd, this is back in the dot-com days, they'd spend that money on marketing and they'd spend it on other dot-com companies and the marketing was effectively going to other dot-com companies because they're doing online marketing. So it became this loop where the company's businesses itself were dependent on um, capital because they're making losses, plus all of their revenue was dependent on other businesses um, raising capital because those businesses were losing money and using it for advertising. So it was this um, this kind of loop of VC capital feeding itself. Uh, whereas today, or at least the businesses, I, sh- I shouldn't say today because there are some crazy parts out there, but the businesses I'm investing in uh, tend to not need very much capital and they tend to be able to meet a lot of their needs themselves. There have been businesses like Zero a few years ago that I was investing in, which did require capital. And that's probably where I think about the risk the most is how much of my portfolio requires external capital, knowing that external capital markets can dry up at the drop of a hat. Uh, and then you compare it to you know a company that I bought a couple of years ago, Pushpay, which didn't uh, at the point where it raised capital, I think, needed to raise any more to get to break even. As has been proven, it's now now through break even now, and it's kind of set to generate tens of millions of dollars of cash. So, and more, I guess, where I, if I think about the risk in the portfolio in terms of fundamental risk, I'm thinking about um, kind of how how much are my companies the masters of their own destiny? How much can they um, how much can they self fund or have enough um, ability to ride out anything that happens there. And if they can do that, and I think the valuation is attractive today on a long-term basis, then it's still attractive for me to invest. It's kind of like Warren Buffett's old thing. You shouldn't be buying anything today that you're not willing to hold for 10 years. Imagine then the market didn't exist. And let's try to to, um, be how I think about it. So I'm not trying to buy something for a re-rate so I can flick it onto someone else. You know, sometimes that'll happen if they give me a great price and willing to sell. But um, when I'm buying, it's because I think that they're attractive given the fundamentals of the business. Um, so it's kind of, I could see a potential case where I'd be buying, it's potential for the share, the share price to fall somewhere along that way. Um, and if everything is correct with my thesis, um, should still be fine uh, kind of coming out the other end of any dip. But yeah, it's definitely something to think about for sure. Yeah, I, I guess um, I guess though I, I do tend to look at this group of companies and and they always seem to be raising capital somewhere. I mean, Afterpay did it recently. I, I, I think I was reading on your website that Pushpay may grow by acquisition and they may have to raise capital to do that. So it seems to be a, a trend for growing companies to, to put the cap out for, for more capital. Yeah, Afterpay wasn't a company I'd recommended previously. They have a very different business model. They're extremely, mm-hmm. extremely capital hungry. The whole business model is basically borrowing money and lending it to people. Um, so that's not a good example. Pushpay, on the other hand, um, is going to be generating you know, 20 million of cash and uh, acquisitions are kind of at its discretion. Um, if it's, I don't, They've also flagged they won't be going out and raising capital, but it's kind of at their choice if they want to um, for acquisitions because the business itself, as I said, 110% revenue retention rates um, and most of their, new, their clients are signed up for three-year contracts and yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty sticky and pretty hard to imagine a case where they need to go and borrow money or something in, in desperation terms. But there's a lot of other businesses. You're right, where as happens when there's when it's a bubble and people are able to 
um, you know, raise capital at these you know, 1% or close to 0% interest rates? Uh, people do. <laughs> and if you get too addicted to that and you build your business around that, then you can get into trouble. So there's definitely examples um, like that. I wouldn't be disagreeing with you there. It's just a matter for me thinking through which companies are able to do that by choice and which um, can choose when they want to do it. So even a few years ago when Zero uh, was in that cash burn mode, or actually probably better stick with Pushpay, when I first bought it, it was burning a lot of capital, but it was also spending you know, 30 million, 40 million a year on sales and marketing. And if it wanted to, it could have canceled its sales and marketing team and with its retention rates, kept um, all of its revenue and probably even grown revenue um, and done pretty okay. So it's kind of, I try to model, if I'm thinking through the business, that's something I'm thinking about a lot is how much of the, the cash burn is voluntary and how much, um, and voluntary could be switched off at the drop of a hat versus how much is really dependent on the market and they have to keep growing to hit scale, all that stuff. Well, Cameron, I've kind of monopolized things here, but I'd just like to say that's the end of my questions. And, and thank you very much, Matt. That was really entertaining and, and illuminating and uh, food for thought. Uh, you've really thought things through in quite uh, a large amount of detail. This is a great chat. Thanks very much. I've just got one question. Can you mm. explain all of that again, but in terms that I can understand? <laughs> By, by great companies um, before the market has realized that they're great and hold them for the for the long run. That yeah, but, my- but how, Matt? That's my question. <laughs> yeah, that's the hard part. The easy part is I think that. Like, my, my serious question is, is, is what you do beyond the realm of normal people? You know, I guess one of the things that um, I'm trying to do with this show is teach people that aren't professional investors Um, uh, how to have a better chance of getting better returns by applying some basic principles Mm -hmm. Uh, but listening to what you've just said for the last hour my mind is melted I'm like holy shit I I can't do what Matt does Matt's a freaking genius uh, he's he's developed this in-depth understanding of these businesses and the sectors they're in and the competitive advantages they have. This is a this is a full-time job, right? You're basically a rocket scientist. <laughs> definitely not a rocket scientist. Um, it is. A, I think that what I'm describing is definitely a full-time job, though. Um, I guess there would be elements. It depends on your portfolio, right? So I think a lot of investors um, are very well served by um, – you know, taking a more passive approach and letting the market itself or other other people do some of the hard work if you can find someone you trust and is, is good and everything else. Um, but there could be a, per- a percent of your portfolio that you do um, that you invest in these types of businesses because you're super interested in it. And if you're super interested in it, you're probably willing to do a lot more work on it than anyone else. Um, so it wouldn't maybe you don't do it for your whole portfolio, which would mean you have to do it for like 15 to 20 companies. But maybe there's one company that you can understand really well. Maybe you're super passionate about, I don't know, gaming or whatever it is, online gaming or something like that, and you can know it that well. I think that's where you have that opportunity. Um, and so that's like a Peter Lynch kind of view is you, there's, there's parts of the market any consumer or someone who's working in an industry understands better than anyone else. Um, but, you know, you don't have to do this particular strategy. There's, as I said, there's plenty of ways to make money in the market. This is one way. I think if you're going to do it successfully, you need to be doing a lot of work. You shouldn't be able to 
identify um, you know future winners easily. If it, it was that easy, everyone would be doing that, I guess, which would take away take away any advantage. So yeah, I guess I'd, I'd think about focusing your energy. Um, if uh, you know if you if you want to go and buy something just for speculation, that's fine. But recognize what you're doing. If not, um, if you want to do kind of the hard work, you know, think through setting enough aside enough time and focusing the wood behind enough arrows, I guess, so that you can concentrate and do enough time to, to do that. Quit your day job, divorce your wife, <laughs> sell, your, sell your kids, and maybe you too can do what Matt yeah. does. Matt, uh, the checklist uh, you, you mentioned, you, you've rattled mm. off different things that you look at. Is that something yeah. that you've published, you're prepared to publish, or is something like the items on that checklist, is that proprietary information that you keep close to your chest, or is it publicly um, I think available? I've written about it a bit on the blog Um mattjoss.com if anyone wants to check it out there and I can give you give you guys a list if you want to put anything in the show notes but it's really like um, yeah it's just all those things it's, I think a lot of people would read them and go yeah that makes sense I don't think it's anything super um, super innovative the big challenge though is like applying them rigorously and not letting yourself get seduced into saying oh well it's it's you know it's got one of these 10 things and so therefore I'm going to buy or you know it's it's got all these things but it's um, it looks really expensive I'm still going to buy it so yeah that's probably the more of the challenge yeah wow that's good. Matt. Um, I'm in awe of uh, the the half a dozen words that I understood that you said in the last hour. Uh, I'm sure the rest of it was just as awe inspiring. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much Hopefully for. Hopefully, uh, more understandable. No, yeah. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, it was really good. Uh, Tony, EBIT, EBIT DAF yeah. is earnings before interest, tax, amortization, and fair value adjustments. That's my contribution to the podcast. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but that's what it stands for. It means whatever the CFO wants it to mean, I think, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the chat with Matt Joss, and you can follow Matt on Twitter. Go to his website. It's probably the easiest way to find his contact information to follow him, mattjoas.com, mattjoss.com. And after Matt left the call, Tony and I had a bit of a post-game chat about what we learnt from our chat with Matt. No, last week you said, uh, no, we're not going to do push pay. We're not going to do any more tech stocks. (laughs) Just wondering if Matt's uh, convinced you otherwise. Oh, look, it hasn't. No, I I still struggle. I mean, I couldn't use my checklist on a company like push pay. It just wouldn't stack up. I I know that before we start. And I've still got a million questions on what what Matt's doing, so I couldn't do it now. And I'm, st- I'm still skeptical about companies like Pushpay. I think I think it was actually Rene Rivkin who used to have a rule that said that you shouldn't buy into companies that have one product or one supplier. And uh, Pushpay, I think, fits that category where you're going out to, you know, churches in the US. That's a fairly narrow niche market, even though it's a big one. But overall, it's a fairly narrow niche market. Um, yeah, but what happened to Rene Rivkin? Where's he? <laughs> yeah, pushing up daisies. Look, I, I was really impressed with Matt's um, Matt's approach, Matt's spiel. But as I said at the end, um, you, what I like about your checklist is anyone can do it. Now, it takes some 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 training, takes some so like a, there's a learning curve that I've been going through for months, and I think I'm getting better at understanding it. But I, you know, I've got further to go. But I feel convinced that a year from now. 
I'll be fairly comfortable at being able to by myself jump into Stock Doctor and pull out the right mm-hmm. numbers and give it a score. Now, I don't think for the life of me I could do what Matt does unless I quit everything mm-hmm. and just dedicated myself to doing this. Uh, so it's it's impressive, but it's beyond the realms of most people who are going to listen to this podcast, I think. Now, his returns might be better or not long-term, depending on how he goes during a crash, but it, it they might be better, but they're just... it's I, my, my honest feeling is there's a very small number of professionals that can do what he does full stop, let alone do it and get consistent results over 30 years. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd agree with that. And to me, it comes down to that question I asked him about, how do you separate the get swifts, which tanked, and the Bellamy's, which went up and came down from the ones that keep going? Because uh, it, it all comes down to it, what's basically, it's, he's saying it comes down to research. It, it comes down to research, but there's also a bit of guesswork in there, as, I think, as well. If you if you haven't, you know, you can research the, the market for competitors and then suddenly one comes out, out of the woodwork you hadn't really thought of. So uh, because you're relying on something to go right in the future, it it can really throw out the, the thesis. I know he said he would get out at that stage and I guess you have to do mm. it quickly before the share price tanks because these stocks that are going up quickly come down quickly as well. Um, that's the nature of them. Uh, so I, I'm still a little bit... Yeah, I, I would feel uncomfortable trying to do the sort of research he does just because in the back of my mind there's always this factor of getting it wrong and, and the the black swan that comes out. And, and that's what, I mean, he quoted Buffett, which is good, but I think Buffett landed where he did because he said, I can't, I can't, you know, value into the future anything other than a company that has such predictable earnings that you can take it out into the future. And he's, he said the way I can do that is to find something with a good moat uh, and uh, – you know, a, a fairly stable sort of industry. So, you know, your, your insurance companies and your um, railroads and your electricity companies, um, your big uh, big sort of consumer brands like Coke, all those kinds of things, even though they, they go up and down, they're, they're reasonably predictable. I mean, Coke's going to be around for a long time and Procter & Gamble will be around for a long time and, um, you know, Geico Insurance will be around for a long time. So he can projected into the future but god knows if push pay will be around for a long time maybe god does because they <laughs> they have an in with the churches in, in the u.s but, but <laughs> how on earth can you predict the, the future cash flows for a company like push pay i just i just couldn't do it well if i look at bellamy's um i've got their chart in front of me if i go back to sort of february 28th in 2019, they were trading around $8.15. And they sort of peaked um, a couple of weeks later, uh, well, a month later, April 1st, they peaked at $11.50. So that's uh, 20 25% uh, growth in that sort of five-week period, four-week period, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, then they came down to $9.30 over the next 10 days. So they dropped... A good twenty percent, but it took it took you know uh, ten days to do that. Then they went back up over the next uh, two weeks to eleven dollars twelve, and then they came down to where they are now, sort of seven eighty something like that. Um, Gradually, over a period of uh, well, well, days. 
uh, initially and then kept kept going. So, I mean, if you are doing it full time and you're sitting there and, you, and you've got alerts set up and you're watching your charts and right. you have some way of figuring out when to get out, you can probably do it um, and benefit from the upside and get out before there's too much downside. But again, I'm thinking... You know, for most of us that are working 80 yeah. hours a week running our day jobs and our families and all that kind of stuff, um, we you know it might be a little bit risky to try and ride the dragon like that. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. It's riding the dragon. I mean, I once looked at our like the checklist that we use and inverted it and said, well, I'm looking for companies with low price-to-cash flow numbers. What about if I get the ones which have high price-to-cash flows? And... They, you know, you look at there's some companies which will have, well, first of all, there's some with negative cash flows, but if you rule those out and take the ones that have sort of 50 to 100 times um, rather than six times, uh, they they perform really well too because they're in that sort of class of push pays and Bellamy's and all those high-flying growth stocks that people are paying up for. But the but the problem, and so the upside is you get some good short-term gains, but the downside is when they fall, they crash. Um, and, you, mm. and as you say, you've got to be vigilant to try and get out before it happens, and it's pretty hard. I mean, if you go way back with Bellamy's, if you go back to February 2015, they were trading about two bucks. By March 18, they were hit 20. I mean, then they came down to that 750 I said before. But I mean, you had plenty of opportunity, plenty of profit to be made there before they came back down to where you started off. But again, got to get the timing. Yeah, right. and, and so there's all sorts of people who'll tell you you could. Uh, you know, um, adopt a rebalancing strategy. So you buy these high growth companies and then when they become too big in your portfolio, you sell down to equal weighting and put the money in something else and all those kinds of things. And sure, that's possibly going to work and probably wouldn't work. But there's always this risk that they all go down <laughs> they all, or a large number go down and they go down quickly. And it's, you're just on thin ice with these companies to a large extent, I think. Well, that's episode 17. Uh, We don't really have time for a stock analysis, I guess. We've already gone over an hour. Thank you for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Um, If you want to do us a favor, jump on Twitter or Facebook or MySpace or email or Pigeon, whatever your preferred form of communication is, and give the show a plug. Send a link to the website, qavpodcast.com.au, to friends you think might be interested in learning more how a professional investor like Tony does it, and someone who has a system, again, that I think any of us can really follow with a little bit of time and attention. It's uh, not that esoteric it's pretty straightforward as i think we all probably understand by now and of course final disclaimer because the lawyers say we have to uh, this is not a financial advice podcast don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice if you're going to make investments please go see a financial advisor this is just uh, entertainment ideas financial literacy a little bit of financial education not financial advice My name is Cameron Riley. If you want to email Tony or I, you can find our contact details up on the website, qavpodcast.com.au. Thanks again. Have a great week.